Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. We live in a very achievement-oriented society in which we learn that there is nothing free. We must work for everything. When children are young, we teach them if they clean up their toys off the floor, then they can have an ice cream cone. When they go to school, the teacher tells them that if they do well, if they have good attendance, if they pay attention and have good marks on their exams, then they will get an A. And, uh, and so they learn how to achieve and work for rewards at school. I heard of one little boy who came home from school and he had uh, showed his parents his report card and he had all F's and one D. His parents said, Johnny, how could you get all F's in one D? And the little boy said, well, I guess I studied too hard in one subject. <laughs> but he got what he deserved, didn't he? That's what he worked for, and that's what he got. When I graduated from high school, I think I got what I deserved. You know how some graduate uh, magna cum laude or the top of the class. I graduated laude, who'd have thought it? <laughs> because that's what I worked for, and that's what I deserved. We go out of school and we go into the workplace, and we're told by our employee that our employer that if we work a certain amount of days, hours, overtime, perhaps, and do a certain project well, then we will also achieve, besides a paycheck, perhaps a promotion. Those who work hard get ahead. Those who don't, don't. We work hard all our lives, and, and we reach a place in our lives where we can retire. And we retire, and we get a, a pension or retirement or Social Security, whatever it is, and we say, I've worked all my life for it, I earned it, I deserve it, and I'm going to use it. And so all of society conditions us to think there's nothing for free, but we work for everything that we have, and everything that we get is a payment for what we've put in. And that's natural, and that's normal. But when it comes to spiritual things, does the same rule apply at all times? For example, when it comes to being a Christian, when it comes to obtaining eternal life, when it comes to being what we call saved, actually becoming a Christian, does it, the same formula transfer from society to biblical truth? Do we get rewarded for something for which we work? If we work hard enough, can we earn our salvation? I have often had the opportunity to ask people, what do, what do you think a person has to do to get to heaven or to have eternal life? And that person will answer in a number of different ways. Perhaps I've heard them say, well, if I'm a pretty good person, then I'll get to heaven. I've heard them say, well, if a person basically follows the Sermon on the Mount, they'll get to heaven. I've heard People say, well, all you really need to do is live by the Ten Commandments. Most would generally say that if I work hard enough and do the very best I can, then I will get to heaven, then I will have eternal life, then I can be saved. And so I find that for many people it does transfer. They really truly believe that obtaining salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, everything that we talk about when we talk about becoming a Christian, that for them it means a certain amount of work, a certain amount of effort, and God gives us a reward for that effort. 
In our passage today, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we're going to answer that question. Is heaven hard work? Can we do something to obtain salvation as a reward, as a payment? If so, what is it we have to do? What does the scripture say on this? So we come to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In chapter 1, we saw the many blessings of God that God had given us. And we ended the chapter by Paul, with Paul's prayer for great power upon those who believe that they might come to realize that great power God is working in them. And chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is really just an extension of what Paul has been thinking of at the end of chapter 1. It's how this great power has worked in our salvation. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is looking back. And Paul is not telling you how to be saved, but he's telling you how the Ephesians were saved. He's reminding them how they were saved. Now, what we get from that today is by looking at how the Ephesians were saved, we can learn today how a person is also saved, how a person today can become a Christian and have eternal life. The passage breaks down very simply. In verses 1 through 3, he talks about before salvation. Before they were saved, they were dead in sin. In verses 4 through 7, he talks about after salvation. Because after salvation, you were made alive in Christ. And then in verses 8 through 10, he really gets to the crux of our question today. And he tells them how they were actually saved. But let's back, back up to verse 1. In verses 1 through 3, where Paul talks about before salvation. Before salvation, you were dead in your sin. He says in verse 1, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. Now, some of your Bibles don't have that little phrase, he made alive. It's supplied by the King James Version, and you know that because it's in italics. It means it's not in the original language. But it's kind of a funny sentence because it's not a complete sentence here. Paul is just saying a thought. It really doesn't have a verb. The verb is supplied by the King James, but if you look in verse 5, you see the idea that Paul is getting at. When you were dead in trespasses, you were made alive together with Christ. and so translator of the King James Version has put that into verse 1, and it's, and it's valid. It belongs there. That's the idea. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. What does Paul mean when he says, you were made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins? He says, before you were made alive, before you were saved, you were dead in trespasses and sins. What does that mean? Well, to be dead means to have no life. I like to think of the idea of death as separation. When we die physically, our soul is separated from our body. When we die spiritually, when we are dead spiritually, which is what this passage is talking about, our spirits are separated from God. You are spiritually dead if you don't know Christ as your Savior. Your spirit is separated from God in this life, and that will carry over into eternity where you will be separated from him forever. What are trespasses and sins? Well, a trespass simply means to not reach the goal, to fall short. It's a moral failure, a moral lack. 
a trespass. A sin means to miss the mark, to be shooting at something, but not to hit the target. Recently, I had an opportunity to shoot skeet for the first time in my life. A skeet are those little clay birds they, they throw out of these buildings and you shoot them with a shotgun. And then you shoot a round of 25 clay pigeons. Uh, my very first time, I'm proud to say I hit 14, which I hear is a little bit above the average. But I wasn't perfect. I didn't hit 25. In fact, all the other fellows who were there, even though I did better than them, I didn't hit 25 and I didn't hit the goal. I fell short. And that's what sin is. Some may hit 20 and 21 and 22, but in God's eyes, to be perfect, to be able to have eternal life and forgiveness of sins and to enter his kingdom, you have to be perfect. You have to have a perfect score. You can't miss the mark in any way. Some people have often compared sin to, to uh, for instance, jumping over the Grand Canyon. You know, we could, everybody here, line up in a big, long line and try to jump over the Grand Canyon. Some of us would get three feet. Some of us would get five feet. Some of you who are super athletic may jump 20 feet. But we all fall far short. And that's what sin is. It's falling far short of the perfection that God is. It's coming short in some area in our lives. So therefore, the scriptures say we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul says in this verse that because of sin, we are dead spiritually. We are separated from God. And then he tells us in verse 2 the source of this death. Why is it that people without Christ are separated from God and dead in their sins and trespasses? Verse 2, he says, These sins and trespasses in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The source of our sin that leads to death is this world. And it's also the devil. And it's also... Verse 3 will tell us our flesh. The world, the devil, and our flesh. Three sources that bring us to, to sin and to death. The course of this world, Paul talks about. We walked according to the course of this world, referring to the whole world system of belief. Before a person comes to know Christ, they have no choice but to do things the way the world tells them to do it. And so they are part of a whole way of thinking, a whole way of reasoning the philosophy of the world called this world system that really originates in the devil himself. It's not so much that the devil is inside of each person who doesn't believe or that he's working personally upon them. It's just that the people, uh, people without Christ are swimming in the sea of this world and they can't help but be breathing its ideas, be breathing its philosophies, and that's what they become. You know, I like to fish. I like the outdoors in every respect. And I really like to fish, and I learned to fish in large part in the Potomac River in Maryland. Potomac River runs through Washington, D.C. Well, they've cleaned it up in recent years, but there were years in which it really got polluted. When I was a teenager and used to fish it, it was probably at its worst. And it was very polluted, and the closer you got to the big city, the more polluted the water was. It got so bad that we would go fishing, and we'd catch a fish, a nice Nice black bass, and we bring it home. And we'd cook that thing up, and we'd eat it. And it tasted like motor oil. Why? Because it was living in polluted water. Fish got polluted. Do you think that the fish really knew that it was living in polluted water? No, that's all it had ever known. Born in it, 
It lived in it. It breathed it. That's all it ever knew was polluted water. When we are born into this sinful world, we don't know anything different. We don't think we're great sinners. We compare ourselves with each other, with the ideas of the day. We look pretty good. But that's all we know. And yet sin has polluted us. Not only that, but verse 2 tells us that we walk according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. The idea here is that Satan is at work behind the scenes to create this environment in which we walk and disobey God. It's a constant rebellion against God in which we clench our fist in his face, refuse to live according to his way. That's the essence of sin. It's a rebellion that's bred by this prince of the power of the air. That's Satan himself. And he works in the sons of disobedience, the children of disobedience. All who follow his ways and his system are those who are called children of disobedience. They are the ones bred by the system. And so their outlook on life is rebelliousness, even as the devil himself is rebellious. What is the result of sin? The symptoms of sin, first, verse 3. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Paul says that all of us, before we were Christians, walked according to the lusts of the flesh, and we fulfilled the desires of the mind. Usually we associate this word lust with something sexual, sexual lust. It's not always that way. Here Paul is talking about desires. Desires that come from within ourselves. Evil desires, they're not always sexual. Desires for more money. Desire for power over others. Desire for recognition, for fame, for achievement. All these kind of desires come from within, from our own egotism. And not only that, Paul says, but then we fulfill the desires of the flesh. You see, we not, not only think about being powerful, but we step over people to get there. We not only think about living and obtaining material goods as the prime purpose of our life, but we sacrifice our family. We sacrifice our morals to obtain them. We not only think about having an affair with that man, that woman, but we initiate the process to make it real. Paul is saying that we conduct ourselves with this attitude of mind. We're always wanting something. But our flesh wants. We don't want the things that God wants. We're just like those sons of disobedience. And he says in verse 3, the result is that we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. He says, even us who are now Christians, we all were the same as the others. We were all children of wrath. We were all objects of God's punishment, is what he's saying. Children of wrath means objects of God's punishment. We are those who he will punish in his wrath and in his anger. And he will pour out of, it out upon us in the future in a place called hell. But even in this life, we experience God's displeasure with our sin. So Paul says that's what we were at one time. Now you see, it's hard sometimes to convince someone who's not a believer in Jesus Christ as their Savior that they are actually sinners, that they fit in this category of people. I find that most people today think that a sinner is someone who has murdered or who has raped 
or has done some terrible thing like rob a bank. And they get quite offended if you tell them that the scripture says that they are sinners. Because their reaction is, I'm not a terrible person. But our tendency is to compare ourselves with one another instead of with God who is perfect. And that person does not feel like a sinner. They don't feel this pollution that they've been living in all their lives. They don't feel the disobedience and the rebellion of their thoughts, their ideas. A little boy came up to a preacher. The preacher had been preaching on this passage and he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The little boy came up to him and he said afterwards, look, preacher, uh, I don't feel like I'm dead. I don't, I'm not a believer in Christ, but I don't feel like I'm dead. I don't feel this weight of sin that you're talking about. The preacher said to the little boy, well, son, if you took a big concrete block and you put it on the body of a dead man, would that dead man feel anything? The boy said, no, of course not. Preacher said, why? Boy said, because he's dead. Preacher said, well, that's why you don't feel your sin. Because you're dead in him. Dead man can't feel anything. And the Bible teaches that before we know Christ as our Savior, we are dead in our sins. We are separated from God. We are walking zombies when it comes to spiritual things. We're cut off from everything God has to offer. We're dead. This doesn't mean that you, you do every kind of sin that there is. When you, see a, when you see someone staggering down the street drunk from alcohol or drugs, or you see someone committing rape or murder or incest, a terrible sin like that, you say, boy, I'm not as bad as he is. But you are as bad off as he is. If you're without Christ, you both perish. You may not be as bad as everyone, but you are as bad off as everyone. When the Titanic sank long ago, good people sank along with the murderers and the adulterers. Some were not as bad as others, but they were all as bad off as each other. And that's the penalty of sin. It's death. So are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we're sinners? Get that question? That's a trick question. Are we sinners because we sin? Or do we sin because we're sinners? Most people think that we're sinners because we sin. And I don't do that, and I don't do that, so I must not be a sinner. But the Bible says, right here, says by nature we are sinners and therefore we sin. The other way around. We sin because we're sinners. We don't have a cold because we cough. We cough because we have a cold. And since we're sinners by nature, we fulfill the desires of our flesh. We disobey God in so many areas of our lives. Well, that's the bad news. And Paul has said, this is the way everybody is before they know Christ as their Savior. Before they have a personal relationship with him and are saved. And he's painted some bad news. But you know, it's only against the bad news that the good news looks good. You ever go into a jewelry store and see the jewels displayed? They don't display them on white if they have a diamond. What do they put that diamond on? Green. <laughs> well, if they really want to bring the colors out, the blackest velvet that they can find. The blackest velvet that they can find. So Paul is putting down the black velvet here because now he's going to talk about salvation and how wonderful it is. And you won't appreciate it's wonderful. You won't think that being a Christian is anything wonderful unless you know how bad off you are. You see? 
And that's why perhaps you've never listened to a gospel message before because you didn't think you were bad off. But if you could realize how lost you were and separated from God, you would listen to every word that the Apostle Paul has written in these scriptures. And so he goes on to talk about salvation, being alive in Christ, in verses 4 through 7. But God, but God, but God, thank God for that word, but. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and trespassed, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why does God save us? Paul answers that in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy. God who is rich in mercy. Why does God save us? Because he's a merciful God. Because he's rich in mercy. It overflows from heaven upon poor sinners like us. What is mercy? We can contrast mercy with justice. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Justice is paying the price. Mercy is pardoning you from paying the price. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. A woman had her portrait taken at a photo studio. She went in to claim the pictures. She got them from the manager and she laid them out on the table and she said, oh, these pictures are terrible. I can't buy these pictures. The manager came over and looked at one of them and they looked at the lady and immediately saw the problem. There was nothing wrong with the picture. The lady was just not very good looking. She was as, fact, as ugly as alligator bait. So the man, the lady said, I can't take these pictures. They just don't do me justice. And the man said, well, lady, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy. <laughs> you, justice is getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. God did not give us what we deserve. Even though we all belong to these who walked according to the world, who these who, with these who were disobedient to God, with these who lived for ourselves and fulfilled our own desires and lusts, even though we were all in that category, Paul says, the scriptures say that God is rich and merciful and in mercy. And he doesn't give us what we deserve. Notice what else it says. Why does he save us? Because of his great love. Not just because of his love. You get that? Because of his great love. God's love is so great, it had to do something about our terrible condition as sinners. What did he do? He did the most he could do. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take the sins off of us and to give us his righteousness. For God so loved the world, same idea, he so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. So Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross. Why? Did he do something wrong? No. We did something wrong. He took our sins upon himself on the cross. And he died, paid the price that we deserve to pay. And because he paid it, we are free from paying that price. That's God's mercy. And then he rose again from the dead. 
and a great and powerful resurrection. But that's how much God loved for us, that he paid that high price. I heard the story several years ago. I, I read it in the Cleveland newspaper about a crossing guard in the city of Brownwood, Texas. Crossing guard was a rather old man. He had this job crossing the children after school. One day he was crossing the children and crossing a little girl across the street. This big truck was coming down the street. He hadn't seen it. The little girl was in danger. She was going to get run over. He jumped out as fast as he could. He pushed the girl out of the way and he himself was hit by the truck. He went to the hospital and later, later died of complications. We could say that this man died for the little girl. And that because he died, she lived. We could say that he died in her place. And that's what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. He has died in our place. Someone interviewed that a policeman, a reporter interviewed the policeman that covered the incident. And the policeman said this to the reporter. He said, imagine someone caring so much. Imagine someone caring so much. Can you imagine that there's someone who cares that much about you? That God does love you with his great love that he gave the most precious thing to himself that he had for you, his only son, to die and be your savior? Why did God save us? Because he's merciful. Because he loves us with a great love. And then in verse 5, it tells us another reason. Even when we were dead in trespasses, not when we were good, but when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And then in parentheses, my Bible says, by grace, you have been saved. Why did God save us? Because he's gracious. Because he's gracious. What is grace? We'll find out that it's a free gift. An undeserved gift. Instead of giving us what we deserved, he didn't give us what we deserved, mercy. He gave us what we did not deserve, grace. God saved us because he's merciful, he's loving, and he's gracious. What's the result of salvation? Verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, not when we were good, not when we came to church with perfect attendance, not when we had memorized enough Bible verses, not when we belonged to a church and had been baptized in the right way. Not when we had given money to the church. Not when we raised our hand or responded to an invitation. But when we were still sinners. When we were still sinners, he made us alive. Together with Christ. You see, our resurrected life that's possible in salvation is only possible because Christ has been raised from the dead. If he hasn't been raised from the dead, neither could we. Because he's raised from the dead, so can we be. And we are made alive together with him. God breathed into a dead man, into a zombie, into someone who is separated from God by sin. He breathed into that person his own life. And that's what we call rebirth. You see, the Christian life is not a matter of being reformed. It's not a matter of signing uh, a declaration that I will do better, making New Year's resolutions, and giving up bad habits, and coming to church, and sitting in the right pew and singing the hymns. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life is all summed up in this. That God gives you his life. He breathes into, into you a new life. And that's called being reborn. He makes you alive together with Christ. In a personal relationship. 
What else happens when a person gets saved? Look at verse 6. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It says, this passage says that you're sitting in heaven with Christ Jesus. Well, it looks to me like you're sitting here in Burleson, Texas. What Paul is speaking about, though, is not where we sit physically, but our spiritual position. Our standing before God is with Christ at his own right hand. We are secure in Christ. Our position is settled in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. The Bible says that we're just pilgrims down here on earth. We're just aliens. We're wandering through this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. When a person comes to know Christ as their savior, their position, heaven, is reserved forever. Remember chapter 1? An inheritance sealed until that day of redemption. And we're seated with Christ. There's nothing else we can do for salvation. We sit down and rest with him. Why does God save us? That's in verse 7. What is the purpose of salvation? That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why does God save us? So that in the future ages, that for all of eternity, he may continue to show his kindness towards us. God likes to be kind so much that he's going to make an eternal hobby of it. And we're going to be the recipient of all of his kindness, all of his grace. Isn't that wonderful? We're going to have the riches of God forever. That's why you're saved. God wants somebody to love for all of eternity. That's the purpose for our salvation. See what Paul has done here is he's taken a past, present, future. In the past, verse 5, he made us alive with Christ. In the present, verse 6, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly. And in the future, we're going to experience God's kindness forever. Oh, it grieves me when some people take being a Christian so lightly that they can just spurn it and shrug it off and not think about it when all the riches they're talking of, spoken of here await us. Resurrected life, new life, eternal glory, and enjoyment of God himself. Paul has talked about before salvation and how dark things were for us in sin. And he's talked about after salvation and the many wonderful benefits that we receive when we get saved. He said that we were dead in our sins, but you can be made alive in Christ. He said that we walked the way of the devil, but now we're seated with Christ. We were in the world, but now we're citizens of heaven. We were objects of wrath, but now we're objects of God's love. We were children of disobedience, but now we're children of God. What a contrast. How important it must be to be saved. What a possession we have when we have eternal life. But we still haven't answered our question, have we? Is heaven hard work? How does a person get from point A to point B? From sin to life? From being a, a child of disobedience? To a child of God. Is heaven hard work? If it's hard work, then anything we do, it's such a great treasure, we would be willing to work hard for it. Anything we do couldn't be enough for such a great prize. What do we have to do to get to heaven? How do we get this reward? Verses 8 through 10 tell us how a person is saved. 
In verses 8 through 10, Paul tells the Ephesians how they were saved, and we can benefit and learn from what he tells them. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now here's the key in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. We have to know what is grace. If it's grace that saves us, what is grace? Grace in its most simplest definition is an undeserved gift. An unmerited gift. Something that is freely given with no strings attached and no conditions. Something you did not work for. If it was my birthday, and you were to be kind and give me a birthday gift, that would be undeserved. You would be insulted if I pulled out of my pocket some dollar bills and offered to pay you for that gift. Then it would no longer be grace. I would have paid you for it. I have bought it. Grace is an undeserved, a free gift. One way of helping us understand grace is to contrast it with its opposite, and that would be works. Notice what he says about grace in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And we'll talk about faith in a minute. But he says this this grace and faith and salvation, it's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's a free gift of God. God's not putting it up for sale. He's giving it out as a free gift. But look at verse 9. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul is making a contrast. Salvation by grace through faith is the opposite of works. I illustrated that with the idea of a gift. Works and grace are as opposite as oil and water. You can't mix them. You cannot mix them like two like poles of a magnet. You can't bring them together. They are contrasting ideas. And the moment you work, it's no longer a grace, Paul says in, in the book of Romans. Grace has to be a free gift of God, and it's spoiled the moment you do any work for it. So you work all week at your job. You see? And you get a paycheck. You don't go to your boss when you get your paycheck. And say, boss, thanks so much for this paycheck. I'm so glad you gave it to me. How gracious you were to give me this free paycheck. He doesn't do that, does he? You work for him. He owes it to you. It's an obligation. If he gave you an extra paycheck, that would be grace. But if you work for it, it's no longer grace. And that's what Paul is saying. There's a contrast here. And if we think that we can work by work our way to heaven, if we think that salvation can be earned by our works, then look what it says in verse 9. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation by grace through faith is not by works so that no one can boast. The idea here is that God wants nobody in heaven who is boasting about being there. No one can get to heaven and say, I earned my way here. No one can get to heaven and say, I deserve to be here. If we did, we would have to tell God to move over. There's two of us now. Nobody deserves to be there. And God will have nobody in his presence boasting about how they got there. 
That would be repugnant to him. Why would it be repugnant to him? Because he's already done the work. And if we try to work our way to salvation, then we're saying that God's work is unimportant. That God's work doesn't count. We despise what he's done in favor of what we've done. Now let me illustrate this for you. You're going to have to use your imagination on this one. But let's say I was in jail, facing the death sentence. But you love me. And you have a child. You go in to the warden, and you work out a deal. And you tell him that you will give your child to free me from prison. The warden agrees, your child is put in prison on the death row and executed. I am allowed to go free. Now you're later on at the uh, Whataburger, enjoying a hamburger with your family. And I walk in, sit down at a table full of some of my friends. Friends are surprised to see me. They say, Charlie, how did you get out of prison? I thought you were a goner. You were a dead man. How did you ever get out? And I say, well, I'll tell you what. I work hard around that place. I scrubbed the floors. I shined the warden's shoes. I cleaned all the toilets. I did everything they told me to do. I earned my way out of there. How would you feel? The price that you paid has been despised. You see, friends, when God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross, he did all the work for salvation. There's no work that needs to be done. And when we insist on earning our own way to heaven by doing good deeds or by trying to, to, to keep the Ten Commandments or go to church every Sunday or whatever it is, when we try to earn our way to heaven, we're saying to God, I'm rejecting what you've done on the cross. That's not important to me. I'm despising that. And it leaves room for us to boast about what we've done. But the Bible says we should only boast in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. But salvation by grace leaves no room for boasting. We're just beggars and we have to receive what God has given to us freely. We can't brag that Jesus died on the cross and that he gave us the free gift of eternal life. What's there to boast about in me being saved? I'm not proud of me, myself, and my salvation. I can't be. God saved me. He did all the work. All I did was hold out my hand and he filled it. And I can't brag about that. I can't be proud that I have new life in Jesus Christ. I can't look down on other people who don't have new life in Jesus Christ. Because it all started and ended with him and I did nothing to earn it, deserve it. So some people say then, aren't good works important for the Christian life? Of course they are. And that's what verse 10 tells us. Verse 10 is very important. Because it tells us that good works are important, but they're only important after salvation, not before. That's the important thing. Look what it says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship is the word from which we get our modern word poem. God's craftsmanship. It's something that God has fashioned. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. I think that speaks of our new life, salvation. For what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should work walk in them God has beforehand prepared good works so that when we were saved we could begin to walk in them 
part of God's eternal plan was that after salvation, you would begin to do good works in the Christian life. So works are not the requirement for eternal life. They are the result of eternal life. Works are important in the Christian life, but first you've got to be a Christian. They are of no, no importance before that point, before you are a Christian. I think this answers our question. Is heaven hard work? No. Heaven is not hard work. Heaven is not easy work either. Heaven is no work. Heaven is a free gift. Eternal life, salvation, the new birth is all a free gift of God. And we can do nothing to earn it or to deserve it. Lest we should boast before God. Therefore, you cannot save yourself by being baptized. You cannot get to heaven by being a good person. Try as hard as you like. You cannot receive the free gift of eternal life by paying for it with good works. You can help as many old ladies across the street as you like. The Bible says that will not earn you salvation. You receive God's gift as something that is free. Now I want to go back and focus on one little word, maybe two words, in verse 8. And this is the most important idea of the whole passage, because this is how a person actually can receive this gift of eternal life. It says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. How do we receive the free gift of eternal life from God? It's through faith. What is faith? Faith means to believe. To believe in such a way that we actually commit ourselves to that thing. To depend upon something. To rely upon something. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's not as simple as believing 2 plus 2 equals 4. But it means that we actually commit ourselves to it. In this instance, we are committing ourselves to God. We are admitting that we're sinners. We're committing ourselves to the work that he's done in our eternal salvation. We are trusting in Jesus Christ to pay for our sins and not ourselves. It's simply holding out an empty hand and receiving what God puts in it. You can try to give me a gift and I can reject it or I can receive it. That's what faith is. Receiving what God is offering. When I was in my college days, I do a lot of crazy things. One of the things we did was we like to go spelunking, several of us. Uh, caving, going to caves, okay? And the rich limestone uh, hills and foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, West Virginia, there were a lot of limestone caves. We found a few. We went into some of these caves, looked around. And I remember one we knew of. We went in. We knew that there was an exit to that cave, and so we wanted to find that exit and get out. We got into this one cavern that was about as big as this room. Had a pretty big cliff. It was taller, about a 20-foot cliff in there. We couldn't find any way out of the cavern. So we figured we had to climb up over the cliff, find the passageway out, which, you know, caves are crazy like that. So the three of us began trying to climb up. Rick went first. I went second. Tim was behind me. Progress was so slow that Tim eventually faded off into the dark to look for another way around up the cliff. And so Rick and I tried to get up. Rick made pretty good progress, and I was behind him. He came almost to the top. He was almost 20 feet from the bottom of the cave floor. But 
the toe holes and the finger holes were getting kind of slim. And he was grabbing on a grass and everything he could. And he reached the point where he was stuck and couldn't go up, couldn't go down. And I was behind him and I couldn't reach him. And he said, I don't know what to do. I can't go up. I can't go down. And I was trying to encourage him to keep going on, but he was going tired and his arms started to shake and his feet started to shake. It was about a half hour later and he couldn't hold on much longer and it was a 20 foot drop. But he was only about three feet from the top. Just about the point where he was ready to give up. He says, I can't go on any further. We heard a voice from above. You need a hand? And it was Tim. He found another way up. He had reached his hand down. And all Rick had to do was take that hand. And he was saved. Faith is simply putting our hands out and letting God fill us. We can't do anything to save ourselves. God has to do all the work. God pulls us up. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace.org at gracelife.org. See you next time.